Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. So Psalm chapter 12, let me get there now. And uh, it's, it seems like it's been a couple of weeks, but uh, we have, a, if you look at the superscription there on Psalm chapter 12, where it gives us a little bit of contextual information, uh, it's to the chief musician. When you see that, it is a song intended for corporate worship, uh, not just a private song to sing to God, but one where we can teach ourselves while we're praising the Lord. Uh, and we need the message uh, that this psalm gives us. And when it says, upon Sheminith, that uh, in Hebrew refers to the eighth, and that's about all we know. Does it mean that it's uh, to be played on an eight-stringed instrument or uh, in octaves, probably some type of musical term? And uh, then we find out that the human author that God inspired to write every single word uh, to us is David there. As far as the genre, we don't get that in the superscription, but as we go through it, we're going to see that this is uh, what we classify as a lament psalm, where David's pouring out his heart to God because the circumstances in his life don't seem to fit with what he knows to be true about God. All right, and so uh, in this particular lament psalm, David contrasts the trouble that he's experiencing uh, from the deceitful and destructive words of wicked men, and he contrasts that with uh, his dependence on God's word, the pure word of God. And so once again, we're provided with that. Hopefully it's becoming familiar to you, that Psalms outline where we find ourselves in a place of fear. That's not a place God designs us to be in. And so uh, by the end of the Psalm, we're in a place of faith. How do we get there? We focus on the facts, who God is, what God has done and does, and what God's promised to do for us. And that's how we move from fear to faith. Let's read Psalm 12, 1 through 8. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sign of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. Let's go to the Lord once more in prayer before we begin the study. God, as we look into your word tonight, you've given us this beautiful hymn. Even though it has somber notes, we see how it typically progresses to great faith in you. And that is what you've called us to, to live in faith, to walk in faith day by day. Sometimes we find ourselves in places of fear. We may be there tonight, places of anxiety, places of great care, and our hearts are heavy. 
And we want to glorify you. We want to know the good that you've promised to give us from your hand. So help us to move from fear to faith. Reveal yourself to us in the facts that you've presented here, Psalm chapter 12, that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verses 1 to 4, we see a fear that assaults with words. Um, a fear that assaults with words. Do you remember back in elementary school, there'd be this little uh, chant, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Is it true? No, it's not true. <laughs> it's our best defense when we're being bullied, but it's not true. There's power in words. And so uh, David here offers an immediate cry in verse 1. He says, help, Lord. Spurgeon says this is like a, a quickly shot arrow of a prayer. And um, you know what? Our prayers should be much more than this, but they should never be less than this. I think this is a beautiful picture of what the Apostle Paul means when he says that you and I are to pray without ceasing. Uh, There are times in our lives when we might not be able to sit down or focus in and have this beautiful oratory prayer. Uh, God loves this one just as much. Help, Lord. I need you. It's a prayer of dependence. I'm in a bad place, and I need you. And um, do you... And I go to him when we find ourselves in crisis, when we find ourselves in moments like this. Is this a prayer that we offer up? I've offered it a few times today, and uh, I hope I continue to do so. And the reason he's giving this immediate cry is uh, because of an intimidating context he finds himself in. The godly man ceaseth, and the faithful fail. Do you think that's an intimidating context? Does it seems somewhat reminiscent of how you and I are right now in this culture we live in. Does the godly man seem to be ceasing? And, and the faithful people seem to be failing or disappearing is, is what it means here. Like the contingent that we once knew, uh, maybe even four or five decades ago, is shrinking and is shrinking and shrinking. And that can be a very unnerving place to find ourselves in. Um, maybe at work maybe at school, maybe at college, uh, and we're just like, wow, this is not what I knew back at Dublin First Baptist Church. This is not uh, what it was like 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Things have changed, right? And uh, it's difficult when we find ourselves and when it seems to be that we're alone in our love for God and in our service to God, but we're called to love him and live for him regardless. Uh, It's not as designed for us to be alone, From Genesis to Revelation, he's placed us in a community of faith. And that's why uh, we're told in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. It's so critical that you're not alone. Uh, And it's actually how we spur each other on in the faith, how we teach each other, how we, in verse 23 of Hebrews 10, how we hold fast the profession. It's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to do when you're alone. That's why God has you in church the benefit and the grace that comes to you through his design, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, there's always been a community of faith because that's not his design. It's not his desire for you to be alone, and it is intimidating, and it's frightening. Now, before we move on, I don't know how factual it is, if you know what I'm saying. David says here, uh, he's not saying he's completely alone. He's saying godly men seem to cease, and uh, faithful people seem to be disappearing, Uh, I can't help but uh, look back in 1 Kings 18 and 19, this great prophet Elijah, uh, he had this uh, momentous and faith-building 
opportunity there at Mount Carmel when he called down fire and he got to see God work and God magnified and God glorified. But uh, we, it was just a day or two later that we see a very different Elijah. And it's all because he had this perspective. In fact, actually that perspective happened before um, when he was about to uh, call down fire. He, he let the prophets of Baal do their thing first. And of course, that didn't happen. Uh, but uh, when he asked them to do it, when he challenged them to that duel of faith, uh, he said, I, I alone am righteous. I'm the only servant of God in all of Israel. Well, that wasn't the case. And then he did this. And then a day or two after this uh, great uh, victory he had of faith, Jezebel tells Elijah, I'm going to kill you today. I'm going to kill you. And Elijah flees out into the wilderness, to the desert. He didn't say, God, is this your will for me to flee? He just, boom, which is very human, natural reaction. And uh, God says to him, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm all alone, God. I'm the only one. I'm the only one that's faithful to you. God gives him some miraculous signs. You know, whirlwind goes by, a fire goes by, and then in a still small voice, God says, what are you doing here? Here's your second chance. And he sticks to his guns. He says, I'm all alone. It's just me. I'm the only faithful servant of you. And because of that, God ended Elijah's ministry. I mean, he had the blessing of being taken to heaven, but Elisha came up and God said, Elijah, I've got 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. All right? But this is the problem. When we start feeling like this, our theology can get all messed up. Our uh, service to God can be halted, and we start getting into a self-absorbed sense of pride. We need to be very careful, even when David's speaking here. Uh, he's not using quite the same strong language as Elijah. He's just saying godly men are ceasing, and that, that might be true, but we've just got to be careful in that type of circumstance. We've got to move out. We've got to move up from this position of wobbly faith. So what's causing this misconception, this misperception in his mind. The words of the wicked, verse 2, says they speak vanity or emptiness, everyone, to his neighbor. Is that what you know of our culture? I'll be honest, I cannot think of anything more descriptive. When you think of all the communication and information that's out there, and a lot of it is just empty. It may be for entertainment, but it doesn't have a whole lot of value, and it's constantly coming at us. They speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor. They have flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. You know, uh, words have power. Scripture teaches us that words have power. In fact, they have the power of life or death. The Proverbs 18.21 says that both death and life are in the power of the tongue, and that's why Jesus' human brother, James, uh, gave us str such strong warnings as believers that we need to be very careful how we use our tongue. It should be designed and uh, used to bless God and not to curse others. But these are the words that are causing David's uh, threat to his faith. There's vain words, there's emptiness, there's flattering. It's out there, it's just manipulative. It's motivated for selfish purposes. In verse 3, he talks about how this is proud speech. Uh, the, the Lord will cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. These people have said, with our tongue, we will prevail. We're going to get what we want by our words. And, um, and they speak proud things. All right, So they are unconcerned with God's will. And they're sometimes in outright rebellion to God's will. 
what is the source of their speech? Why are they talking this way? Well, he says they have a double heart. Literally, there's two hearts in them. James said that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, so the source of it is that they don't have a united heart to love God and to serve God. And the sin of their speech is this. It's just an outright rebellion. Our lips are with us. We're going to get what we want, uh, no matter who we have to hurt with our words, no matter what that causes. This is life-stealing. This is soul-depleting. Have you ever been in this environment where somebody's words came at you and it sucked life out of you? what David's experiencing. It has the potential to be faith-wrecking. That's why we've got to know how to get out of this problem. This is David's experience his whole life. I mean, words were part of his life. When he first came to prominence, it was with Goliath, right? And why did he go up against Goliath? What was Goliath doing? He hadn't killed a single person. He's just blaspheming God. And David said, you're not going to do that. Words were a part of that. And, and when David was anointed king and he fled from Saul, it was Saul's words and words that some of Saul's uh, people, as far as lies uh, and betrayal, that they said David was trying to get the throne and he was turning on Saul. Uh, David had to face that. David had to face it with Doeg. David had to face it with uh, the men of Keilah who gave him up when he was trying to hide. He had to face it with Nabal. He had to face it with his own son, Absalom his own son, planting the seeds of a coup attempt, saying, David doesn't care about you, Israel, but if I were king, David had to face this his whole life. His father-in-law, Ahithophel, Bathsheba's father, turned against him and defected with Absalom. And then as he was fleeing from the city, he's got this guy named Shimei who's cursing him the whole way, throwing rocks at him. David's whole life, he had to face this. So how does David move up? How does he move out of this incorrect perspective, uh, away from this threat to his faith, this threat to God's glory and David's good? We focus on the facts. Verses 5 and 6, we focus on the facts. For the oppression of the poor, for the sign of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. And so David realizes this fact. God is aware. That's important. God sees what's going on. God hears what they are saying. You know, in Psalm 18:6, David says, In my distress, I cried to the Lord. Uh, to my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. Isn't that a blessing to know we have a God who hears? And David says that in Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open uh, to their cry. In Psalm 139, 4, David says, For there's not a word in my tongue but, Lord, you knowest it altogether. Even before I speak it, you know it. You want me to pray it in dependence on you. And so we have a God that hears. Isn't that a beautiful thing? The only thing that can prevent him from hearing is if I have unconfessed sin in my life. David said that in Psalm 66, 8. If I regard iniquity in my heart and I don't turn from it and don't confess it and don't repent it, you will not hear me. And uh, Isaiah said, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's the only time God cannot hear you. And that's a simple fix, isn't it? We bow, we confess our sins to him, we're restored, the access is there, uh, his ears are open to our cry. This isn't David's condition, there's not unconfessed sin. He, he immediately, in verse 1, is crying out, help, Lord, right? And so David uh, has this privilege. Not only do we have a God who's aware, he wants us to pray to him. He asks us to come boldly before his throne. That's such a miraculous thing when you grab onto that. And it makes me just drop in awe that we can do that. 
I mean, do you remember the picture of God's throne? I think Dr. White preached on that passage in Isaiah uh, where uh, he's ushered up there and there's angels and, and they've never sinned. They're obeying God. And they have six wings, and with two they cover their face, and with two they fly to service the God, and with two they cover their feet, and just an uh, honor of his holiness. And Isaiah falls down because he's unworthy. But we're told to boldly come into that same place. And do you know why we can? Two words, Jesus Christ. We can come boldly into that throne and cry out to our God. We have a God who's aware. And you know what? It's not just that he's aware. He's also acting. We have a God who acts. And that's the, the biggest blessing. We don't have a, the God of deism who set the world into motion and then is unconcerned with our plight. Is God concerned with our plight? God is concerned with our plight. This is proof. Jesus Christ, God, come down. The only, the only religion, the only faith where God comes to us. All others, past, trying to make it to God, trying to earn favor to God. Here, God comes down for me. And we stand in wonder at that. We have a God who's aware. You know, he's omniscient. He's aware. But he's also omnipotent, and he's sovereign, and he's just, and he cares about justice. And this is what verse 5 promises. For the oppression of the poor and for the sign of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I'm going to deliver them. And I think it's important we understand, it's not that God was inactive before. It's not. Uh, he's always on the throne. Never asleep. Never unaware. Never inactive. That's not our God. You know what? Our inability to see, even in, if the Lord gives us 80 years, 100 years of life, our inability to see uh, him act, maybe as how we would like him to, doesn't mean he isn't acting for you and I right now. It doesn't mean that. But David here is just getting the blessing of seeing the apex or the climax of that action because God says, uh, for the oppression of the poor and for the sign of the needy, now will I arise. He's seeing that all come together because we have a God who acts. Psalm 34, 17 says, when the righteous cry for help, God's not just aware, he hears and he delivers them out of all of their troubles. It may seem like I'm still in them. He's in the process of acting for you. That's what Romans 8, 28 tells us. Psalm 50, 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. And Psalm 66, 17 says, Verily God hath heard me, and he had attended to the voice of my prayer. And that's what he does here in verse 5. Even when it seems like he isn't acting, even like when it seems that we have not been set in safety, we are. We're setting safety from puffers, from people who are puffing. That's all they're doing. So i got to ask you a question. Let's go back to the Old Testament. One of my favorite accounts is Joseph. Was God acting when Joseph was in the pit? He was. Was God acting when Joseph was in Potiphar's house? He was. Was God acting when Joseph was in prison? It's a key, important part to, think, to look at here because, um, you know, Joseph didn't remain Faithful. I mean, faithful, full of faith. He didn't remain faithful because he knew one day God was going to put him second in charge of Egypt. He didn't remain faithful because one day he knew he'd get to see dad again and family would be restored. He just totally trusted God day in and day out, every moment. And then he got to see that. See, that's the thing. It's the eyes 
uh, of faith, day in, day out, that trust God like David's describing here, that trust God like Joseph did. Uh, even when the words of the wicked are wounding me, um, I still have total trust regarding God's character and God's conduct, and that's why God puts this critical part in here to help us move from fear to faith. He says, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I'm doing. This is what I will do. I don't change. And I'm asking you to trust. And what will prevent the blessing of our getting to see that? What's going to prevent that is when we continue to focus on fear instead of focusing on these facts. That's the great obstacle to faith. And David's asking us to hurdle that. You know, Tony Evans says, God is glorified when we walk by faith, not when we wish by faith. There's a big difference. It's a big difference. When we will actually step out. And verses 7 and 8 tell us that faith arises from God's word. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Romans 10, 17. We often use it when we're trying to win someone to the Lord, when we're trying to lead them in salvation. And Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I tend to I relegate that to uh, that, that aspect of salvation when you're born again. Like, oh, that, you have to hear the gospel, and that's how it works. And that's definitely, it is. But it's also for you and I right here and right now who have been saved 10 years, 50 years, 60 years. How does faith come to you? How do you continue in faith? It comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That verse is just as important for your sanctification and one day your glorification as it is for your regeneration. Faith that arises from God's word. In verse uh, 7, he says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, and shall preserve them from this generation forever. So you're currently kept. Even though it may not seem like it, he's got you now. You're in his hands. He's set you in safety. You're kept from this generation, it says. From this particular problem in your life. You don't have that circumstance that's outside of it. Like, yours isn't the one exception to how God works. We have to believe that. And God is how God works. In my particular problem, in this specific instance, I'm kept. And I'm kept forever. I'm eternally preserved. It tells us in verse 7, his grip isn't loosened. His grip isn't lost. He doesn't become weak or tired. In the last verse of verse, or last word of verse 7, uh, we are kept how long? Forever. Forever. That's how he keeps us. You know, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, Paul, who understood difficult times, he says, for this light and momentary affliction. Remember those two words. This light and momentary affliction. It worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight. So he says, this affliction is not fun. And honestly, it seems like it's encapsulating my whole life right now but it's light, and it's momentary, at least compared to the glory that God's working in me through this. That, that is an eternal, not momentary, and that's a weight, not light. And he uses two polar opposites there, but then he says if. There's an if there. There's a condition to this being true for us if we look not at the things which are unseen, or the things that are seen, but the things which are not seen. The things that are seen or temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. It's a beautiful place to find ourselves in verse 5 and 6 and 7. And then there's verse 8. The wicked walk on every side, 
when the vilest men are exalted. So as I'm reading this, as I'm studying this, I'm like, God, why did you end this psalm this way? It's supposed to be this beautiful trajectory where I move from fear to faith. And then I get this verse, the wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. It does not seem like I'm ending on a fantastic level of faith here. Or am I? Think about it for a minute. Here in verse 8, wicked are walking about. Literally, um, back and forth, in the Hebrew means back and forth and all around me, like sharks circling their prey. That's what's being described here. And the vilest, I mean, the worst people you can think of, they're in positions of power and prominence, and they seem to be enjoying prosperity, and that's a very frustrating place to be. That's not how the world is supposed to be. That's not how God's character is supposed to be reflected. And then there's still the disappointment of all these malicious words and manipulative threats that are surrounding us. And God inspires David here to give us verse 8. And it is. We're still up there. We're still in that trajectory. We haven't dipped down because here's the thing. Even in verse 8, is God still aware? Yeah. Is God still acting? Even when the wicked are about me on every side and when the vilest men are exalted, I believe he's really trying to reinforce this. This is a fantastic level of faith. You know what? My faith may not have changed my circumstances, but that's not what my faith is supposed to be dependent on. That's not faith. That's a trade. No. What has changed? What or who I'm magnifying by focusing on them? I've moved from the troubling words of the wicked in verses 1 to 4. That's where David's gaze was. He spent four verses on that, and he's moved from there. And he's moved to the pure and life-changing word of God, and that is faith. Do you want to end on a high note? I do. And that's the high note, that I'm still living in this. This is where God's glorified, not because my circumstances have changed, but because I decide to glorify you anyway. You deserve praise anyway because I'm kept and I'm preserved and now and forever I have decided I'm going to hear God's words, not the words from the people in verses 1 through 4. Who are you going to listen to? That's what David's asking us here. I was talking with Angela Pate um, the other, I think it was Sunday night, just about what Mr. Billy Ray is going through and everything like that. And it's tough when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, uh, affliction, the threat of death, we're going to be very real. It's difficult for us. And um, I don't know if you've been going through Luke. I'm, I'm excited because a lot of you have been telling me you have been, and some of you even asking, what book are we going to do next month? But as Kristen and I have been reading through Luke, I noticed something. And back in Luke, uh, I think it's chapter 1, verse 41, Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and in comes Mary, and what does that little baby do inside of her? It leaps because he recognized Jesus. Recognize Jesus. Elite. Doesn't have much other consciousness, but God calls him to leap. In Luke 3, 16, John's out there baptizing people, and here comes Jesus. And he says, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I'm not worthy to take off your shoe because you are Jesus. And we come to Luke uh, 7. In verse 19 and 22, and Jesus is out there performing his miracles, and he gets two visitors. They're visitors from John the Baptist. You know where John the Baptist is right now? He's in prison on death row. He's going to die. He's going to die. And he sends two people to ask Jesus something. Are you him? Are you the Messiah? 
Man, as a fetus, he knew that was Jesus. And as he's baptizing, he knew it was Jesus. But do you see how his vision was clouded by the painful circumstances of life? What a lesson we can be there. And Jesus says, listen, go and tell him what you've seen. Tell him what I'm doing. So what is it that is going to change John the Baptist's perspective? What does Jesus give him? The facts. Who I am, what I'm doing, what I'm promising to do. Yes, I'm still the Messiah. Even when you're in prison, John, I'm still the Messiah. I'm still there. And faith isn't dependent on uh, our changed circumstances. Faith sings in the middle of those circumstances. Faith sings in the middle of the storm. Do you want to know what the lyrics are? You are God. And you're good. And you're game. You're game. Don't care about all that because I have you and you are gain. That's a beautiful hymn, isn't it? That God's given us here in Psalm 12. Whose words will you choose to hear? So we're going to sing a couple more. We're going to sing, O come, O come.